Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, and I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today. And as always, I'm joined by Mark Alley. Hey, Morgan. Hey, editor-in-chief. <laughs> <laughs> Just had to remind people that that's your role. There you go. All right. Well, who are we joined by today? We are honored to have Richard Stearns with us. He's been president of the Global Christian Relief and Development Organization World Vision since 1998. He's in his 20th year. He's the author of The Hole in Our Gospel, which earned uh, the ECPA's 2009 Christian Book of the Year Award. And more recently, he's written Unfinished, Believing is Only the Beginning. So we're really, really glad to have you, Rich. Well, great to be on the podcast. So it feels weird saying this, but almost 10 years ago, you came to my school, Messiah College. And I was really good at RSVPing for these like luncheons that we would have with chapel speakers afterwards. And I forgot to RSVP for this one. So I showed up to the chapel luncheon and tried to beg my way into it. And they said, no, it's full. So anyway, so here finally, I am. You yeah. finally get to talk with him. I okay. remember that luncheon very, very oh, well. No. <laughs> <laughs> and there was somebody that was missing. There was someone missing. <laughs> well, I remember just you talk, getting up stage and talking. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be great to ask this guy questions. And then, no, I was denied. So now I can finally ask you now you get your questions. chance. Great. Um, well, let's get into the show. World Vision is one of the largest nonprofits in the U.S. The Evangelical Christian Charity takes in over $1 billion annually and ranks number 12 on Forbes' list of 100 largest American charities. Starting in the 1950s, throughout its history, World Vision has helped Vietnamese refugees, those devastated by the Ethiopian famine, the African AIDS crisis, and those affected by the Syrian civil war. Its sponsor child program assists 1 million children, in addition to the millions reached by its community health, micro lending and clean water work. So how does a Christian organization at this scale keep its faith central to its work? What's more, how does this play out across differences in culture, forms of government, and type of work? Today on Quick to Listen, we will dive into all of those issues. Before we get into the discussion, I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today magazine. And today I just wanted to focus on one of my favorite parts of our issue, which is our testimony section. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, Mark? Yeah, we've been running a testimony in the back of the magazine for two or three years now. To show you the difference between me and the managing editor that followed me, I thought it was a great idea that when I was managing editor, never managed to execute. But then when Caitlin Beatty came on board, she thought it was a good idea, and she actually got it started. It's been one of our more popular sections, because it basically tells in very short order people's stories of how they came to Christ, and uh, every one of them. And it's amazing how many ways Jesus brings people to himself. Yeah, they're so unique. So for this July-August issue, we had an Iraqi interpreter, and he told his story of how he found Christ. And he actually told a story, too, of how his father found Christ in the process. And both of those things were really amazing. In fact, one time his father's faith was so strong, he actually saw someone in need on the side of the road and took off all his clothes and gave it to the man there. But even then, the guy didn't necessarily become a Christian until later in life, but he just remembered that his father's faith really being very stark. But then, like, next month, for instance, we actually talked to this chess champion. <laughs> yeah, completely different world. <laughs> exactly. 
Yeah. I know we've had ones where like someone whose father was the founder of this like polygamous sect, someone who was on it's a Fox News personality. Yeah, it's all over the place in a really cool way. Yeah. All right. So you can read all these stories by being a subscriber. You can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. And if you order now, you will be able to get our September issue, which is going to presses as we speak. All right, Richard, let's get into this discussion. First question is, what are key distinctives about the way that World Vision understands and practices ministry that really set it apart from other Christian NGO work out there? I would say that the the two real pillars from Scripture that energize and motivate world vision are the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. So the Great Commandment is to love our neighbors as ourselves, to care for the least of these, to feed the hungry, bring water to the thirsty, care for the refugee, the stranger, care for people that are sick. We believe that's an amazing command of Christ to demonstrate uh, the gospel in tangible ways to our, our neighbors. And then the second, the Great Commission, is to make disciples in all nations. And I believe that the, the Great Commandment actually catalyzes the Great Commission. In other words, when you get involved in people's lives, when you care about their children and their families, when you care about their physical well-being, and their economic well-being, and you walk alongside them through tragedy and hopefully some positive things in their lives, and you you, you invest in their lives, they're much more likely to uh, be interested in what you believe about faith and about God. And so the Great Commandment, when it's lived out in tangible ways, catalyzes the Great Commission. So those are kind of the two overarching pillars of our work. But, you know, World Vision has always started with the least of these. We were founded in Korea, and it was about caring for Korean war orphans. Uh, it was about children. It was about caring for traumatized, vulnerable children in the middle of a conflict. And that's where World Vision was born in 1950. Today, we're in about 100 countries around the world. Uh, we are child-focused still. We like to say we're child-focused, Christ-centered, and community-empowering, uh, the three C's of our work. And we're about working with the poor, but not just to give handouts uh, to people that need things, but we're about tackling the root causes of poverty. Poverty is deeply rooted in many places around the world, including our own country, and there are root causes to that poverty that need to be addressed. And sometimes we're too eager as churches or Christians to put Band-Aids on problems. You know, if people are hungry, give them food. Well, they'll be hungry next year, too. So we, we like to think our distinctive is that we really try to tackle the root causes of poverty. And one other distinctive is a lot of charities do one thing. They might do housing. They might do food. They might do microfinance. But we've learned that poverty is really an ecosystem. People live in this ecosystem of poverty where all of these different causes are interrelated. And if you don't have clean water and you're a little girl, you probably can't go to school. And uh, if you don't have clean water, your health is poor as well. And without clean water, there's no economic opportunity and livelihood in the community. So they're all interconnected. So World Vision tends to take the hard way of working uh, across the ecosystem of poverty, believing that if you're going to really change the ecosystem, you have to work in the multiple dimensions of people's lives, and you have to do it over a long period of time. You can't fix it in 24 months. So we go in typically for about 15 years in a community, and we walk with them. And I like to say that we're one of the only charities that likes to say goodbye. 
because we tell the community when we start that there will be an exit date when World Vision will leave their community. And that's the moment where we hand them the keys and say, now you drive because we've imparted to you that which we can. We've taught you different things about health and farming and gender and clean water and sanitation. Our structure globally revolves around area development projects and and they I think we've got over 1500 of them in the world and uh, we regularly uh, close those projects at the end of their life cycle and we have usually a three-year exit strategy as we get toward the end and when we leave we are leaving community leadership in their hands. So there's a water committee that's been formed. There's an education committee that's been formed. There might be an AIDS prevention committee that's been formed. There are farmers cooperatives. Are they still called World Vision, but they're indigenous or? They're not World Vision at that point. They're, they're, we kind of turn it over to the community. We're, we're Really, our goal is to help the community stand on its own two feet, solve its own problems, equip them to solve those problems, give them help and inputs where needed, but really try to encourage their independence. Uh, and we work hard to try not to cause dependency because always yeah. one of the pitfalls yeah. in development is the community becomes dependent on you and they're dependent on you forever. And that's why I say we, we're, we're an organization that likes to say goodbye. Do these committees work alongside the local government? Are they part of the local government? How does the local government interact with the work that you guys are doing? We always try to work to some degree with governments because we believe governments have an important role to play in the well-being of their citizens. And and so we, depending on the government, sometimes we work in close association with them on common goals and common objectives. I was just in Kenya in June and... Uh, we did a water project that brought clean water to something like 80,000 people in this district of Kenya. When we were finished, we turned the project over to the Kenyan government to run, particularly their local government leaders, their district leaders, because we felt it was more appropriate for the Kenyan government to be providing these services. And now the Kenyan government is finding ways to expand the services to more people. So I think they're already at 100,000 people and they're trying to expand it further. But these local committees tend to be village level committees that we form that are you know underneath the government if you will they're 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 at a local level that is you know not at the governmental level but often will involve you know government leaders in some of the planning and some of the work with the community some of the community members are select men or aldermen or whatever they might be called in in, in their country as someone who's read a couple of books on development always talking about this type of theory and practice is really really interesting to me specifically when you're looking at dependency but but I feel like when you're thinking about Christian organizations in particular, there's one other key tension that often doesn't get addressed by um, mainstream development groups, which is like how faith is a part of work and what that looks like. You know, you're working in parts of the world where there's been longstanding missions efforts that have been there for a long time. So I'm curious if you can just talk about some of the maybe non-traditional mission ways that faith is a part of the World Vision work, but that don't necessarily go through the traditional missions channels. You know, for many years, faith was a four-letter word uh, for donor governments and big foundations because donor governments and big foundations tend to be secular, right? And they, they don't want the, quote, contamination of proselytism or, you know, conversion attempts uh, in nonprofits. But it's really interesting in the last five or 10 years, um, faith 
in development has become kind of a buzzword. In fact, one of my team members says faith is the new black in global development. It's like the cool in thing. And even secular organizations are starting to embrace faith and development programs. Why? Because what they've learned through trial and error is that if you try to affect behavior change in a community, and a lot of development is behavior change, if you try to do that in a community and you don't engage faith leaders, whether they be Hindu priests or Buddhist priests or imams or pastors, you are missing the grass tops leaders who actually have the influence and the moral authority to influence their community's behavior and worldview. And so this faith is the new black. Uh, all of a sudden, funders are interested in organizations that are working with faith leaders. You know, one of the examples is the whole crusade to end polio. And it's usually fallen short when a group of imams in northern Nigeria see this as a threat to their community and they don't understand it. And if you don't work with those leaders, uh, women are not going to get their children vaccinated against polio. But if you can educate those leaders and bring them on board and get them to be proponents of the polio vaccine, then your development program will succeed. And, and so, and yet they still don't support proselytism and, you know, forced conversions or what I would call unethical witness, you know, if we'll give you this benefit if you'll come and listen to this message. And World Vision doesn't proselytize. We we never use coercive methods to get people to hear a religious message. Do you make a distinction between proselytize and evangelize? Yeah, I think they're very different words because proselytism to, to us means some kind of coercive uh, method to coerce people to listen to a religious message or to change their religious views in order to receive some benefit. So we provide our services, our benefits, our partnership with no strings attached, believing that the best way to show our faith is to demonstrate it through our actions. And, and of course, over 15 years in the community, we have many opportunities to talk about life and death and faith and God. And, and so we use those opportunities as a, you could call it evangelism. It's not the traditional altar call evangelism right, right. that you think of, but it's... Does the staff get training on how to do that, how to share their faith appropriately? We do, and we're trying to improve that. We've got a, a new program for every World Vision leader in the world now called the Mission Immersion Program, which really tries to train and equip our leaders in what it means to do Christian development and, and uh, relief and development and how our faith impacts our work. We've got a new program we're rolling out in East Africa called the Empowered Biblical Worldview, which is a, a way to work with farmers in particular, but starting with worldview issues and uh, who are you before God? And uh, just things that are surprising news to many of the people we work with, that God is a loving God, and he loves you, and he's placed within you all kinds of God-given creativity and ability. It, it helps deal with some of the animism and the ancestor worship and the superstitions that we find in parts of East Africa. And so this Empowered Worldview program is becoming foundational to more and more of our work as we uh, roll it out to more project areas. Have you ever been in countries that have even wanted to restrict, even if it's asked for, sharing that type of... Uh evangelism. Yeah, absolutely. And and in fact, one of the things I often talk to our donors about is uh, how our Christian witness 
looks very different depending on where in the world you look. So obviously, if you're working in Afghanistan, you're not going to show the Jesus film on the in the town square in Kabul. It's against the law. It's dangerous. Uh, it would be inflammatory. But if you work in Bolivia, you might have uh, the children in your program go to a summer Bible camp, you know, vacation Bible school, because it's, it's culturally appropriate and you can do that. So we have to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves as we think about the issue of faith in different contexts. And there are countries in which we work that are Islamic republics where the penalty for conversion is death and the penalty for proselytism is death. And so in places like that, we are very limited in terms of how we can talk about faith and and talk about faith issues. And we have to respect those local customs and and regulations. There are other places there is much greater religious freedom to, to share openly. I like to think that in these difficult closed contexts, that we're doing some of the soil preparation for what will someday be a harvest. You know, we're pulling out stumps and moving boulders, and uh, we're demonstrating our Christian faith in tangible ways. And that may be all we're able to do at this moment. Um, But maybe 50 years from now, there'll be a harvest. So, yeah, we've talked about government a decent amount. For instance, you guys are currently doing humanitarian work in Somalia. Jeremy, our coworker, recently went to go see some of that work. You know, that's a country there. There's long been instability in its government. And at times, the government has actually been an Islamist extreme group itself. So what guides World Vision... Um, when they're, you guys are deciding whether to work with foreign governments, which may have poor human rights records or even persecute Christians? Well, first, I might comment on a megatrend um, in terms of what's happening to poverty globally in the world. And there's good news and bad news about poverty. The good news is tremendous progress has been made in fighting the most extreme poverty uh, globally in the last 25 years. And in fact, uh, more people have been lifted out of poverty in the last 25 years than at any time in human history. And 2 billion people since 1990 have gotten access to clean water for the first time. Two billion people out of seven billion on the planet. Uh, Maternal and child mortality have been slashed in half since 1990. So most people don't realize how much progress has been made um, for a whole variety of reasons. Missions programs and NGOs like World Vision, but the work of governments, economic development in China and India, all of these things, the UN Millennium Development Goals have contributed to this. So that's the good news about poverty. We're actually winning the war. And if you're giving to an organization that's trying to help the poor, your gift is making a difference. That's the good news. That's what I want you to hear. The bad news is that poverty is increasingly now concentrated in what we call fragile states. These are broken countries like Somalia, where they've got either corrupt or incompetent governments. They've got Uh, a track record of human rights abuses. They're the most difficult places in the world to be a child or to be a woman. And these are the hard places where poverty is now concentrating. In fact, 70% of all child mortality is now in the 50 most fragile countries in the world. And all of the poverty indices are off the charts in these countries. So what that says is that if you're serious about caring for the most vulnerable people in the world and helping the least of these, you're going to end up working in these difficult countries where there are human rights abuses and and, and these kinds of things abound. My reading of those, uh, that dramatic turnaround in poverty and other statistics is has been mostly due to the fact that governments of large countries like China and India have basically opened up their markets so that allows businesses to flourish. That's been the most dramatic 
instance. A, would you say that's, would you agree with that analysis? And B, if that's true or largely true, what is the role of organizations like World Vision if in fact the, the, the lever for reducing poverty seems to be, seems to reside in the Department of, of Commerce? You know, you're certainly right that economic development and economic growth in China and India have resulted in many, many people uh, finding a more prosperous economic reality and, and, you know, better job opportunities and income opportunities. But there are still more people in extreme poverty in India than all the countries of Africa combined. So it it hasn't been a miracle cure uh, to poverty. And, you know, World Vision often works uh, with the poorest of the poor, where their problems are so fundamental that you could not even really envision an economic revolution in that region of that country. So we're working kind of at the sub-economic level, uh, people that can't reach the first rung of the economic ladder. They're subsistence farmers. They're living in rural areas. They've got very little education. They've got no access to clean water. They have little or no health care or health knowledge. They might not be ready for even microfinance. Yeah, even level. even those kinds of programs could be a little bit advanced, you know, for, for some of those populations. So there's still a lot of opportunity in the poorest of the poor communities to do some of the most basic things with education, maternal and child health and safe childbirth and, and uh, gender protection and, and, you know, fighting practices like uh, female genital mutilation and early marriage and preventing the trafficking of children and, and some of the things that just the fact that there's a factory that comes to your country doesn't solve those problems. It doesn't bring clean water out of the ground. It doesn't make childbirth safer for women. So there's a lot of uh, work that has to be done to get a community to a place where economic opportunity can become a reality for them. And so there's a, there's a whole kind of food chain of the economic ladder and how you... And that would be especially true in these countries. I'm sorry, you call them uh, fragile. Yeah, in the fragile countries, uh, that would very much be the case in most of them. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. So again, given that you're trying to work in areas where there may be less infrastructure or more human rights abuses in, involved here, at what point would World Vision say that, you know, we actually can't work in this state or country because of atrocities? There's kind of a conundrum that we face is that countries with all of those human rights abuses and challenges happen to be the places where the most vulnerable people live. So we tend to work in those places because we feel God has called our organization to the most vulnerable. And if you're going to be very serious about helping the most vulnerable people, you're going to have to work in places like that. Now, we have to take care not to be co-opted by or too closely associated with those governments because government is often part of the problem. 
In fact, I've visited countries where the, the president of the country has learned that you know, the head of World Vision is coming and he wants to meet with me at the presidential palace or whatever. And our local staff say, you can't do the meeting because he will use this as a political tool against his enemies. He will try to burnish his reputation by showing that he's working with a humanitarian organization that's doing good for the country and he'll try to take credit. So there are actually times when we don't, we, we will refuse meetings with government leaders how, because how do you we do don't that? want to be associated yeah. with a particular political party. How do you uh, do that without insulting the president? Well, sometimes, usually we try to go in under the radar so they don't even know I'm there. But sometimes we just find ways to say the schedule won't work or it's not possible on this trip, maybe next trip. Um, but we're always very careful at World Vision not to get too closely associated with one political faction or another in a country because if you just wait five years, the other faction is in power now and they remember your association with the former uh, regime and, and you just get in trouble. So humanitarian neutrality is very important to us. So one larger trend that I know is going on right now, I wrote a piece about this a couple years ago, is that NGOs are actually being expelled by foreign governments. And so, you know, I was asking you about when would you guys choose not to work? But sometimes the opposite is true, where, you know, China has made it a lot more difficult for NGOs to work there. India kicked out Compassion International earlier this year. I also looked at um, rules in Uganda and Ethiopia and Russia. So given this kind of like larger climate that then has that trend changed how you guys, your philosophy of doing work too? Well, it's a very alarming trend, you know, for us to see a mercy corps was thrown out of Turkey recently. You mentioned compassion in India. This is a, a trend. And I think what motivates it is some of these governments are realizing that NGOs represent foreign money and foreign influence, but also they can serve as watchdogs to human rights abuses, right? So if you're doing or committing human rights abuses, you don't want witnesses that are broadcasting it to the world. And so especially organizations like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, you know, those organizations are often persona non grata in, in some of these places. So again, I said earlier, you have to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Our goal is to help the people People that live there um, have better lives. And so we have to navigate these often treacherous waters to be able to do that. And so we try not to alienate the government through our work. We try to stick to our knitting and really focus on things like clean water. And even we found that even governments that you might consider hostile or corrupt or committing human rights abuses, even those governments do appreciate often some of the work we're doing to improve uh, the lot of their citizens and to improve the quality of life in, in their country. So, you know, there's there's good streaks that run through all of us. And even in some of those difficult places, you find the government officials actually appreciate uh, the work that's being done. I don't know how specifically you're able to talk about this, but I wanted to go back to the compassion thing in India really quickly, because when we reported on this earlier this year, compassion had been kicked out, but World Vision's program was still going. And I wanted to circle back to these ministry distinctives and how you guys operate in countries. Are you able to comment on like how what your philosophy looked like with regards to running your sponsor program in India that kind of differed from Compassion's? We're different in one respect, that most of Compassion's programs involve transferring funds to churches, um, and their local partners are churches often. And so they're transferring money directly to Indian churches to run their school and educational programs. That's not the way World Vision works. So our money is used to pay our staff and to carry out programs directly with communities in which we work. But, you know, all of us 
have to operate in every country with a great deal of integrity and transparency so we don't raise suspicions of the government or fears that the government, you know, we're somehow undermining them. And so we, you know, we try to be very, very careful. We try to be very, very much filled with integrity in the way we operate in a country. We register with the government when we go into a country. We work there with their permission, uh, except in very rare cases uh, where there's a humanitarian crisis that that requires us to go in. So I've actually talked to Jimmy Miato at Compassion about, you know, their dilemma. And I, I think it's terribly unfortunate that they had to uh, withdraw. I don't think the story is over yet. It's very possible that World Vision could face a similar thing at any time. So was the issue there uh, some suspicion of corruption, or is it just the idea of money getting funneled to local churches that was a stumbling block? It's hard to know, but I think the Indian government has become more and more concerned about foreign influences in their country, and especially a country that's predominantly Hindu, concerned about you know, foreign religious influences. So I know one of their concerns is proselytism. If, if, if you know, they perceive you as uh, proselytizing or using unsavory methods to induce people to convert, you know, that would red flag your organization. I also think the way you handle money, are you paying your taxes? Are you handling your employees the right way? So they're looking at a variety of things when they look at NGOs to say, you know, are you helping our country or hurting our country through the lenses they're looking at. And, you know, I think every organization has to kind of hope that they pass muster, you know, and are allowed to stay in in India. You had mentioned earlier in this conversation that you guys are launching this like large staff training um, with regards to faith. And obviously you work with a variety of people from a different context. And so everyone can have a faith commitment, but the way that they practice and understand their faith is going to look differently based on how they were raised and what country they're from. So how did that go into how you created this program and how you're kind of unrolling it? You know, World Vision has the unique challenge. Well, it's not totally unique, but we we work with so many different expressions of the Christian faith. So we have Greek Orthodox, Armenian Orthodox employees. We have Roman Catholic employees. We have Pentecostal and Evangelical and Mainline. And, you know, we really are an expression of the church. In fact, one of the phrases I like is that World Vision is an expression of the church, the global church, on special assignment with the poor. And so we have to be respectful of other Christian traditions and uh, inclusive of them. We need to come together around, you know, our common goals to help the poor and to demonstrate the love of Christ uh, through our work. And, And I've actually found it to be a remarkably positive experience. I mean, when I go to a global World Vision meeting, uh, we had our triennial council in Colombia, Bogota, last fall, and literally four or five hundred people there from a hundred countries, each coming from different expressions of the Christian faith. And we worshiped together, we sang hymns together. I'll never forget we sang Great is Thy Faithfulness, and we all sang it in our native tongue. And so it was it was like a little glimpse of what heaven might be like, you know, when all these Christians come together. Except we'll be speaking. Speaking in tongues there, I assume. Maybe we'll be speaking in tongues. Uh, I doubt we'll be speaking English. I don't know. We may may be speaking Swahili or something. But it's a challenge, but we focus on what unites us, and and we're we're, we're sensitive to other faith traditions and uh, various faith traditions, but we find a lot of unity. You know, sometimes my friends at Save the Children or Care or Oxfam say, well, 
What is World Vision's secret? You guys don't seem to have the same level of political infighting and all of these things that we struggle with. And I say, the secret is we pray together. You know, we, we get in a room and if we've got a problem, we pray about it. We, we share a common faith. Uh, we have much more in common than we have uh, that pulls us apart. I think that's uh, one of the special things about an organization like World Vision. It allows us to practice a kind of ecumenism at the ground level that really works. Do you find, though, it because this seems to happen when there's lots of diversity, right? I'm sure these different traditions often have different understandings of how to solve poverty at various times or how to interact with local authorities or different different type of sensibilities. How does that kind of like get untangled, especially given the fact that the headquarters are located in a Western context, but you're working in many contexts in the Southern Hemisphere and Eastern contexts as well? I think most of it is around just being sensitive. So I can speak to the U.S. office. You know, we have chapel every week, uh, 11 o'clock on Wednesdays. And, you know, we have employees from 50 plus denominations uh, who work at World Vision U.S. And sometimes we'll hear from, you know, maybe our Roman Catholic employees that, you know, our chapel worship isn't comfortable for them or the way we pray might not be comfortable. So we'll try to have a chapel led by maybe a Catholic uh, priest uh, from time to time or an Orthodox priest. Uh, We'll bring in local pastors from our community who will preach or lead, you know, a service. So we try to be just sensitive to a, a lot of it comes down to different worship styles and different ways of praying, you know, that different traditions have. It's not so much that we're fighting over the theology of how to help the poor. I mean, most of our employees realize that, well, World Vision has really become kind of experts in dealing with issues of poverty. So those are not the things that divide us as much as just more superficial things about how we act in certain you know, settings. I would think, though, that people who'd want to start to work with World Vision recognize that it's evangelical history and heritage, and there's going to yeah. be some that's going to dominate the flavor of the prayer meetings and the worship, although you try to do your very best to be inclusive to other traditions. It would seem to me, yeah, that they would accept that, okay, there's, I'm going to give up something here, my own distinctiveness to help with this organization that's doing an awesome job. Yeah, I mean, there, there is that. And I, I mean, we, we do have evangelical roots. Uh, today, we're much more ecumenical than we were in 1955 or 1960, um, as we've kind of had a bigger tent to pull in more of the great Christian traditions around the world. And, you know, so when we go, I'll never forget one of the things that I experienced when I went to Armenia in, I think it was 2001, and I met with the Katolikos, who is the, the the Pope of the Armenian Orthodox Church. And, you know, he's a very exalted uh, religious leader. And he shared with me how difficult it was under communism for the church. And that by the time, you know, communism was removed from Armenia, um, the church was really broken and, and hurting. And he said, a lot of evangelicals came in, and instead of supporting us, they planted their own churches, you know. And he said it broke our hearts because we have been here since the year 301 AD, you know, where the first uh, church was started in Armenia. But he said, World Vision, you came in and said, how can we help you get back on your feet? How can... And we actually developed with the Catholicos the and the Armenian Orthodox Church a K-12 through curriculum called Christ for the Children to reintroduce the Christian faith to all the children of Armenia using Armenian Orthodox iconography in the book 
book and having it endorsed by the Armenian Pope, the Katolikos. And we actually got it in the Armenian public schools. And it's still being used as a curriculum in the Armenian public schools as an elective. But we came in and said, we're going to support the indigenous church here, even though they're not evangelical in the same way we are, but they've been here for 1,700 years, and we want to see them stronger. We've done similar things in Romania and uh, other Eastern Bloc countries. All right. Well, I'm going to leave that kind of encouraging note as the way that we'll wrap up our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us, Richard, and sharing all of that. As a reminder to everyone who listens to the podcast, give us feedback on our social media channels. We are on Twitter at CT Podcasts. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. Now's the time of the show we call Precious Moments, which is when we ask everyone to share something that is bringing them joy this week and how we can get to know them a little bit better. Mark, I hope you're ready. In my precious moment, was the, it was my wife's birthday this weekend, so I was a dutiful husband. I started off being a dutiful husband, and then I ended up being a happy husband. So all you husbands out there, keep keep that in mind. And dutiful meant she wanted to go to the uh, Chicago Botanical Gardens. She loves gardening. And I thought, all right, well, that's not the first thing I'd want to do, but I'll go ahead and do it. And either I've forgotten that I visited there or something. I walked into that place and it was absolutely gorgeous, beautiful gardens, sweeping views and vistas and everything from the sweeping views to the individual plants. And it turned out to be, forget my wife, I thought it was great. I biked there a couple weeks ago from home and I was just like, man, this is so great. Why don't I come here more often? Exactly. Yep. Um, where can people find you? I publish something called The Galley Report, which you can get by going to christianitytoday.com slash thegalleyreport, spelled G-A-L-L-I, not like the ship's galley, uh, in which I link to various articles and comment on them. And many people find that helpful. You might too. You can get it every Friday. Richard? Well, I'm going to mention two things. One is very easy because last night, I got to hold for the first time my brand new grandson, who there is two go. weeks old. His name is Shepherd Joel Stearns, and uh, he was born to my son and daughter-in-law who live here in Westmont, Illinois. And my son is a pastor at Christ Church of Oakbrook, so I got to hold this little guy uh, who weighs seven pounds, and uh, he is my fifth grandson, and I've got a $10,000 reward out for a granddaughter to the first <laughs> one of my children that can produce a granddaughter. Okay. And... Uh, so that's, that, that brought me joy. It's been great uh, to be a grandfather and to see your kids becoming parents, and so it brought a lot of joy to our lives. The other reason I'm here in Chicago is I'll be attending the Willow Creek Global Leadership Summit, and we're going to challenge every church leader in earshot to consider doing a Refugee Sunday on November 5th to raise support to reach out to the 15 million Syrian and Iraqi IDPs and refugees in the world. And we're hoping that a lot of churches will uh, will rally and, and do that. And that would bring me great joy if they did. Awesome. Are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter at Rich Stearns and uh, can always use a few more followers. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So my precious moment, I guess it's kind of similar to Mark's and that I was originally a little bit annoyed about this. I mentioned recently on the podcast that I'm taking French classes and that I need to study more. So I went to a cafe on Sunday afternoon that served chai tea, which is awesome, and was all set to study and was in the process of studying. And I ran into two of my friends from another class that I'm taking right now. And this class is like not in a Christian context at all. And in fact, I don't know a lot of people at all that are like people of faith, but I had a binder open and that binder was from University of 
Barcelona when I studied abroad there a number of years ago. And one of the people that was like in this group was like, is that a University of Barcelona binder? She's like, I studied there. And then we basically found out that we'd been in the same study abroad program years apart from each other and that she had gone to a Mennonite school and that she'd gone to a seminary down in Argentina and worked with a brethren community in France. And anyway, and the other woman who was with her um, had been in Bible school for four years. And these other two women that were there are people who I feel like are moderately connected slash kind of distant from their faith right there. And we ended up talking for about an hour and a half about faith and kind of where people are at. And one of them was like asking me about church. So I was really mad because I didn't get to study French and I set aside time to specifically to get better at that. But it was really hard to think that that conversation just came out of the blue or from yeah. nowhere. Yeah. So I was happy that that happened. Yeah. Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together talks about interruptions being often driven by God. So that sounds like one of them. Thanks, God. (laughs) (laughs) All right. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the podcast. Apple Podcasts is where you can find us and where you can also leave a review, which is super helpful to us. But we are ultimately wherever you want to get your podcasts from. Again, you can subscribe to Christianity Dig by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. Thank you so much to our producers, Cray Allred and Richard Clark, and we will see everyone next week.